we're back again. It's another BRFCS podcast, and thank you ever so much for joining us. So much to talk about, so little time. Let's press on. Yeah, welcome back everyone to this month's podcast. I trust that dry annuary is now well behind us all, and that attendance numbers at your local gyms are regressing back to the mean. No more queuing for that rowing machine behind the bloke in the newly purchased kit and the pristine trainers. In this episode, we welcome our trusty old friends, Triumph and Disaster, and we try our best to treat those two imposters just the same. There's much to discuss and we also have a special guest for you, so strap yourselves in and enjoy the ride. Hopefully it's a bit more Fleetwood away than Plymouth away. So on to tonight's episode. On your panel tonight we've assembled three people, each more than capable of keeping their heads when all about us are losing theirs and blaming it all on playing a defensive winger away at Plymouth. First up, the man who persuaded me to start recreational running again in my 50s, and he keeps me on my toes by invariably being in Sainsbury's or sometimes even Aldi when we should be recording a podcast. I know it's an old joke, but I've got to return to it every now and then. It's Mike Dillap. Mike, how do we find you this evening? Very well, thank you. Very well. Thank you for having me back again. It's an absolute pleasure. Our second panellist tonight is the man who allegedly described Danny Graham as useless earlier this season, only then to be seen schmoozing in the corporate lounges last week with an unidentified Rover striker who apparently had dark hair, a beard and wasn't Bradley Dack. He only did it to motivate him, I'm sure. It's the Marple Leaf, Michael Taylor. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, good to see you. You all right? Uh, super, thank you. Yes, good to have you back on the pod. And we'll, uh, we'll come back to that Danny Graham uh, reference later on, I'm sure. Our special guest this evening, who is joining us on the panel for part one, but we'll also get the chance to know him a little bit better in part two, it's the Lancashire Telegraph Rovers reporter, Richard Sharp. Rich, thank you for joining us uh, tonight on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. It's, It's good to have another voice, another perspective. So that's parts one and two outlined. In part three, we'll look ahead to the upcoming fixtures and discuss a couple of other football-related issues that have been in the news lately. That's our running order. We're warmed up. We're in formation. So let's kick off. So let's catch up then on what's happened since New Year's Day and the Rotherham game, which we touched on in our last podcast. Uh, first up, an FA Cup tie, Hull City. Michael, I'm going to call you in on this one and uh, let's dismiss this one fairly quickly, I think. Yeah, it was miserable. I thought it was a really limp performance. I was feeling really ill and um, and I think obviously most of the players were. Um, hopefully it'll be a blessing that we got knocked out of the cup and it'll be Wigan's curse that they have a cup run, but we shall see. Yeah, it sometimes doesn't work like that, does it? But fingers crossed. No. And they feel- in, fact, it, in fact, it never works, but, you know. <laughs> it's Bruce can get to the checker trade and lose, like, 19 players to a mysterious illness, so that would be fantastic. Well, that leads us on quite nicely. It was the big one. Shrewsbury Town at home. Um, 13,500, packed Ewood. Chance to stamp our authority on the division. And from a personal perspective, I got to meet Marcus Antonson pre-game to receive a signed shirt. And what a delightful chap he is. Really, really nice guy, and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience, I have to say. But anyhow, um, interesting refereeing decisions. 
Michael, do you want to come in on that one? Yeah, I mean, there were two penalties that basically weren't on further examination. I've never been as mad in a football match as I have at the Shrewsbury game, mainly because I thought Rovers set themselves up so well for this game. I thought all the preparation was right. They were pressing from the word go. Shrewsbury were on their back foot from the word go. And I just thought from 1 to 11, it was a really, really top team performance that could have been ruined by the intervention, once again, of a poor refereeing performance. And I've kind of stopped myself now, and I just accept that, unfortunately, it is what it is at this division. I think it was the same weekend, incidentally, that Darren Ferguson, the Doncaster manager, son of Sir Alex, made an outrageous comment that referees should be shot. Refereeing in this division, we've just got to get used to it. And I think, on the whole, this game proved it. Bad decisions will even themselves out over the course of a season. And in this instance, bad decisions even themselves out over the course of a game. They absolutely did, yeah. I think there was, there was quite um, a divergence of opinion on Twitter post-game about um, whether um, Raya had touched the ball and whether the guy had dived. There is no doubt, in my opinion, that Samuel would not have got his penalty if the first one hadn't been given. And I think there was a spot of Mark Clattenburg-esque evening up. Mike, what was your take on that game? I'd suggest you'd struggle to find anyone who thought it was anything short of terrific. Uh, best game of the yeah. season by a mile. Yeah. It was played It was played to an absolute standard by everybody. Uh, and after sort of renting various flats around the pitch somewhere, Elliot Bennett has finally found a home in the central midfield somewhere. I thought he was marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. Um, and I don't think 3-1 was at all flattering. I think, if anything... We deserve to win by a bit more. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure why um, Downing's goal was ruled out. Somebody in the yeah. press box said it was a push um, yeah. when the cross came in, but I, I was I was equally perplexed, but was uh, was battling the Ewood Wi-Fi at that point, so uh, <laughs> so only looked up as he chested it down and volleyed it in. But um, yeah. the impressive thing for me on on the day was Rovers. I, I called it out Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury um, mm. play, playing Bennett and Smallwood in there. The real strength of Shrewsbury for me has been Nolan Godfrey and a go-go in that central midfield and. They were far too powerful for Rovers in the reverse fixture in September. Uh, and having Bennett and Smallwood in there, I, I thought was brilliant. And mm. Rovers just smothered them. They, they pressed them back and, and Shrewsbury weren't good enough to, to play out. So every time they cleared the ball, they, they were just clearing it straight to, to Mulgrew and down. And they had the easy job of, of starting attacks again. And I agree with Michael's point mm. about how it was so disappointing to go in at 1-1 having played so well. Um and just for for the referee decision to cloud what what was an excellent first half performance because I think it it did like it, it, you could tell it it played on the player's mind. Speaking to him after, they said half time came at a good point because at least we could probably calm down from from that yeah. feeling of injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, they had a bit of a wobble probably for five minutes after half time where Nolan missed that chance. But from from the moment that Graham scored, it was. Uh, it was a real quality performance and undoubtedly a bigger game for Rovers than it was Shrewsbury given the three draws over, over the festive period. But you could really sense in that week leading up to it that the players, the players were up for it and they were, uh, they were ready to, to do a job on it. Charlie Mulgrew, though, is, is so calm, isn't he, with the set pieces. I think he's, he really is quality. Whenever, whenever I see him lining up for a free kick these days, I, I view it more as a penalty than a penalty, almost. It's, uh, it, it, I think he's, his accuracy is absolutely extraordinary. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if anyone clocked that on that penalty. By the way, was uh, the last two or three he's had obviously that in Rovers this season playing for Rovers, he's angled it to sort of like the left of the keeper and up into the side netting. And I think he obviously switched directions this time. And I think he saw the key. He saw the keeper trying to set up in the direction. He'd obviously done his homework. 
and he just calmly rolled at the other side. I mean, it just he never looks like he's going to miss Mulberry with those. Um, that that was all. another interesting thing um, after the game that Mowbray said they'd actually considered switching penalty takers because Mulgrew had been so good going the way that he had that he thought keepers might um, start working him out. But I think I think you make mm. a valid point that the keeper had done his own work so much that he dived before he'd even run up to kick mm. the ball and. Just had the simple job of, uh, of sliding it into the side. But just on Mulgrew, I think it was one of the first things that Mowbray did when he came in was put Mulgrew on set pieces. Uh, the first goal he scored at Burton in Mowbray's first game came from a, a Mulgrew in swinging corner. So um, that's certainly something he said he'd seen from, from his days up in Scotland. And uh, like you say, I think we've certainly seen his quality from set piece and certainly missed him with those floating corners we saw at Plymouth that, that the keeper kept looking at out the air. Just, just what you miss when he, uh, when he doesn't play. Yeah, when he's not there, he leaves a massive, massive gap. Just the, the ability to bring the ball out from the back with assurance and his distribution is is in a is a class above anything else in our team. There's no doubt about that. Uh, one one thing that um, I noticed watching watching the game was the the Blackburn end endearing themselves to Dean Henderson, and what seemed to start as a wind up has ended with the guy being banned for three games. Was that totally unprovoked, or was it an absolutely ridiculous reaction by the keeper? Michael, do you want to jump in on this one? Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't throw things into a crowd. I mean, you might think that the crowd is one single entity that has abused you and thrown crisp packets, cigarette lighters and empty bottles at you, but you never know who you might hit when you throw it back. So quite rightly, for that reason, it's hugely irresponsible, and um, and he deserves every sanction thrown at him. It's an idiotic thing to do. As for the Rovers fans, some stewarding needs to uh, take place there. We need to stamp out stuff like this or it's going to end up having parts of the ground closed or especially after the incident earlier in the season with the fan running on the pitch. The last thing we need in this promotion push is getting a reputation that um, we've got idiot fans. Yeah, well, well, we'll come back to that when we talk about the Northampton game. Rich, from your perspective, was there ever any concern at the club that there might be FA sanctions? I, I was surprised when I got in touch with the club that they'd heard nothing from uh, from the FA. Um, for me, it was quite uncomfortable watching. For me, I thought it went on for far too long. Uh, we're not talking that he threw one cut. He threw probably four or five. Um, the referee just seemed oblivious to to what was going on. Um, and this, I mean, the Shrewsbury boss suggested that he flicked them. And I, I can't, I can't get my head around that. He was, he was throwing him with some serious force. On the flip side, there should never have been coins on the pitch for, for him to be to be thrown back. And I know we'll probably go into the Northampton game and and what happened there with it with a similar incident. But yeah, it was uncomfortable viewing for me. Uh, but yeah, slightly surprised. That, um, that something more wasn't made of um, yeah. Rovers' involvement in that. And that's certainly what Shrewsbury were pushing for. Um, once I saw Henderson had been banned, I thought, well, the obvious thing is that they'll give us a suspended sentence or something like that, and he's going to slap the wrist fine. But uh, I, I work with a uh, with a Shrewsbury Town fan, and we've been having a lot of banters, I'm sure you can imagine, over the last few weeks. And he asked me, he sort of said, uh, yeah, what's all this about Henderson flicking things back into the crowd? I said, he threw it in over the top of the stumps to the wicketkeeper trying to run the batsman out. I said, it was that kind of force and it was that kind of uh, of energy that he put into the throw. It wasn't, it certainly wasn't a flick. And just, going on, just going back to Henderson, I think that there's previous with him, apparently there was there was an incident against Bradford where he, he got involved with the crowd and in the first half of the game as well with the Darwin end, I think he was he was involved with the crowd then. Yeah. He was cupping his ears to them when yeah. they scored the scored the penalty so I don't think there was much mm. love lost between them for, for a Manchester think... United loanee as well you'd think that'd be something that'd be um, he'd probably have learned from that experience the first time it happened and not let it affect him as much as it, uh, it obviously did 
I think uh, it, it sounds like the most sort of more like simplistic thing. You can talk about the Rovers fans all you want, but he's the one there who's being paid to do a job and he's got a certain responsibility to behave in a certain way, especially in the industry that he's in. And he's, you know, he's obviously quite, he, he, based on his actions and speaking about that facing up to the Bradford crowd uh, incident as well, he's obviously got a bit of growing up to do, I would say. He's, you know, he's the one that, Asked the cop the, the punishment, as far as I can yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, D- Didier Drogba was sent off at Burnley a few years ago. Last time they were up in the pram for throwing one coin back into the crowd. And, I, yeah, I think the point you, you made earlier, Richard, the referee just didn't really seem to be aware of the rules and what his, uh, his obligations were. But there we go. So, tremendous win. 3-1 over Shrewsbury. That seemed to set everything up nicely. Uh, next game, then, was away at Fleetwood. And a, uh, a first half of almost total domination, picking up where we left off against Shrewsbury. Um, Michael, pre-game, you um, you feasted on fish and chips, as I understand. Oh, you've got to. It's a must when you go to Fleetwood. Um, nice, nice bit of fish and chips. Um, we we were very lucky to get tickets because they'd sold out, but we have connections. Um, it was great, really good day out. And Rovers picked up where they left off. I think um, we, we should have been four 0 up at half time. Um, Williams at the bar. Samuel really should have scored. Total domination. And. Um, and we even had a bit of fun with Elliot Ward dancing along the touchline as well. The Elliot Ward song, I think, is just absolutely tremendous. I don't know where that came from, but, <laughs> but it was one of those, hang on a minute, are they, are they singing about Elliot Ward? They are. Rich, what was, what was the perspective from the press box? Oh, yeah, well, well, I loved it. Um, and, and probably cause more so because of what happened after Northampton um, at the back end of December, yeah. everything that went on with... I wasn't aware of it, but apparently some fans having having a go at him at the final whistle. Um, so yeah, I think it was a nice touch that from the Rovers fans, and uh, yeah, certainly enjoyed in the press box that we were uh, we're singing along to it, and uh, came at a good time. And obviously, Rovers were playing uh, playing some of the best football that they have for for a while in that first half. Yeah, a bit of, bit of Wilson Pickett from the Rovers fans. We need we need another player now with a four syllable name. Don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we got rid of him, so they can adapt it. No, I was going to say, I came up with an Elliot Ward early song earlier in the season from a similar era and tradition of music. And it was, um, Ward, ha, huh, what is he good for? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> say it again. Anyhow, oh, we'll, move, we'll move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I, if I can't get my Up All Night for Shane Duffy song to work, then you can't get that to work, I'm betting you. Mike, what was your take on the Fleetwood game? Yeah, very. I mean, like, everyone seems to concur. They should have been absolutely out of sight. You know, game managing the second half, really. Um, only being 1-0 up, it's always that little bit of a, well, the Fleetwood are obviously going to come out a little bit more inspired second half. And so it proved, uh, again, we, you know, it almost feels a bit galling. We had to just budge ourselves over the line with, with Smallwood's goal. But it was, a, it was a polished performance. It deserved the win. And special love in particular for that marvellous save from David Rea that he had no idea was offside. That was truly stuff of wonder. Who who would have ever thought that Charlie Mulgrew would be responsible for the error that gave Fleetwood the equaliser, though? Well, I'll I'll come to his defence a little bit. I've been been sat right in front of it, and he was given an awful pass from Derek Williams, who who probably messed about with it for, for far too long than he should have done on the halfway line, whether he was going to hook it over his shoulder. But um, it was a bit of a shank from Mulgrew on his right foot and uh, left Raya really, really sole. I think if it was any nearer to the attacker, then Raya could have stayed on his line or obviously any nearer to Raya and it would have cleared the ball. But that was a real kick in the teeth because, like, like we've said, they should have been, been way out of sight and then to be one all. Uh, and that suddenly lifted Fleetwood from nowhere, really. They had probably two or three good opportunities after 
after equalising. But you could see straight away Mulgrew knew. Um, he he apologised to, to Raya. I saw some fans say that Raya was at fault for the goal, but I think you could certainly see with the, the reaction of Mulgrew that um, yeah, he knew he'd, uh, he'd given one away there. Yeah, there was no doubt it was Mulgrew's error. I think to assign blame to Raya for that would be... Uh... Really, really unfair. So I don't know about you guys, but I was beginning to panic. Uh, two subs in six minutes definitely changed it, though. And if there's one thing that pleased to see it was that Mowbray wanted to seize the initiative. And we had our first sight of Jack Payne playing for us as opposed to tearing us uh, inside out like he did at Oxford United. Um, that goal, who wants to come in on that? Mike, um, Richie Smallwood? Oh, who doesn't love Richie Smallwood? I mean, uh, it, it was quite... It was almost like uh, Jack Payne did a little shimmy, didn't he? And then he laid it across. And I think Smallwood sort of had a look at Payne and thought that, that shimmy was a good idea. So he sold about half the side one, uh, the Fleetwood side one. Uh, smashing goal. That'll be top three of goal of the season, that, with, without much doubt at all. Yeah, it's glorious stuff. And made even better uh, for the final whistle when you find out that Shrewsbury have thrown away a two-goal lead. And then made even, even better when you watch the highlights and see that it's our friend that we've just been talking about, Dean Henderson, who successfully slips to miss a punch for the first goal and then carries the ball over the line for the second goal. So that's it. Shrewsbury are throwing away a two-goal lead. We're going up, aren't we? What could possibly go wrong? Rovers then um, team it up nicely, and we all know what happens next in Rovers' script. Northampton Town at home. 12,500 fans this time in Inniewood Park. Uh, back-to-back wins have raised the stakes, and here is a chance to consolidate. What on earth happened? It's another of these games this season where we just seem to run out of ideas. The uh, the away team come, they park the bus. They, I never think we'll lose these games when we go one down. I think we've got it in as always to come back and do it, um, to, to overturn a, a one-nil deficit. But again, once again, playing the same old balls... Um, I was really disappointed at how little service Dak was getting, particularly in the last 15 minutes. He seemed to have been pushed out of position a little bit. He seemed to have been squeezed, man-marked, and he was dropping deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where they weren't giving him the ball because he had too much ground to try and make up, whereas they were trying to get the ball quickly, constantly. And frustrating. I think, um, if I'm allowed to say this, Northampton are the ultimate house team in this division. You're allowed to say it. I now have to make sure I put the explicit marker on when I uh, when I put it on iTunes, and of course that restricts our audience still further. Rich, more missile thrown from the Blackburn end. Yeah, um, speaking to Danny Graham after this afterwards, because um, this happened to be the one time that the referee looked like he was going to book their goalkeeper for time wasting, uh, which is such a frustrating thing that if you time waste in the fifth minute or the ninety fifth minute, surely sh- still carries the same punishment and. That happened to be a time when some, he was retrieving stuff that had been thrown on the pitch, which then the referee spoke to him and he actually just wasted even more time. So it just um, just really compounded things, to be honest. Um, on the game as a whole, I think the massive thing is conceding first. I think that's probably uh, 10 times now this season Rovers have conceded the first goal uh, and only gone on to win once, which was Bristol Rovers. Uh, and we saw obviously the game we're going to touch on later, the Walsall game, just... If Rovers can get themselves ahead at home, it's just such a, an easier, easier ride for them. And Northampton, once they got that goal ahead so early, they, they were only going to play one way. And uh, mm. that's just how it transpired, sadly. I don't think anybody should be um, really surprised by, by their approach or criticise them, to be fair. They certainly seem to have the hex over us. Certainly the, the game down at six fields. Uh, it, was a, it was a basic game plan, but it was executed almost flawlessly. 
and Rovers had ample chances in that game, of course, to sew it up and didn't take them. Here, I don't think they did. I don't think Rovers created, actually, that many chances. But the same thing happened there, that they scored first, didn't they, after yes. about 15 yes. minutes again, so everything yeah. just played out the same. But yeah, you think back to the, the game there, they missed the penalty in Conway, missed the open goal, was yeah. there really? Yeah. That I think this shot that was saved, but... Not a great this, deal, else. Yeah, this this the, this game in particular reminded me of the AFC Wimbledon game from earlier in the year. They had a very sort of basic game plan, but once they'd sort of nullified Rovers' sort of more you know creative players, it just turned into a bit of a well, we'll just end up lumping it into yeah. the box type approach. So anyhow, we come out of that with a draw, uh, and then midweek we've got Walsall at home. Walsall, not the strongest opponent on paper, but I think after the Northampton game, there was maybe a bit more trepidation than um, than perhaps you would have expected. But a high energy start, Mike. What was your take on uh, on the Walsall game? I I thought it was well, it was about as routine a win as you could imagine. The only slight downside to the whole evening was that Adam Armstrong was uh, was was having his um, sort of one on one match all evening and didn't end in actually scoring with the goalkeeper, but. Uh, I, you know, it, like Rich was saying before, they got an early goal, even when Walsall got a slightly dubious equaliser, there wasn't a lot to panic about, I was still very, very, say equaliser, sorry, got a very dubious pegged one back to get back to 2-1, sorry, um, I wasn't overly concerned, it, it could have been 5-6 or six or 7-1, you know, I think our game plan was, I think we thought they didn't have an awful lot coming forward, so we thought we could commit you know, Payne and Armstrong and Dak forward and have a real go at them. And, you know, it was a bit of a field day almost without the uh, fruits of a, of a higher scoreline. Rich, from the, from the press box, um, I, I didn't get a sense of any anxiety when we conceded. What, what was the mood like from your perspective? I think it was just amazement that, that they'd conceded uh, and just how it had come about from such a nothing ball forward that first Namby, whether he got pushed or beaten off it a bit easy or whether he was offside, um, you, you can debate that one, but... Downing was obviously sure he was he was offside because he had his hand up for a good five or six times and the lad skipped inside him without much of a challenge. But yeah, I think like Mike said, there was never really that um, that feeling that uh, the game was going to get away from him. I think like you said, they always knew that Payne and Armstrong were going to score, and Walsall just didn't really have that same defensive resilience to do it to do a Northampton job on them. They were uh, they pretty much played into Rovers' hands, really playing a bit more open, and uh, yeah, it was a comfortable victory in the end. So in, in a departure from our normal routine here, we're going to do a bit of a corporate hospitality review. So uh, <laughs> w- w- what's, the, what's the take, Mr Taylor, on the, the quality of the corporate hospitality? And did you apologise in person to Danny Graham? No, I don't. I never talk to the players. I've got a policy of never doing it. Um, the kids do. Uh, I was with my, uh, one of my sons. He enjoyed meeting Danny Graham. But um, No, I would say, though, it should have been eight. I thought we were fantastic. And just to come back again to the points we were making about the earlier games this season, we should have the self-confidence to think we're a decent side, we're one of the best sides. And when we've got that belief in what our game plan is, we take it to the opposition and do it rather than worrying about what they can bring. And, and I think we fall down when we over, um, over-coach and over-practice and overcompensate for the other team's qualities. With Walsall, we just thought, well, we're Blackburn Rovers. We've got Danny Graham who can hold the ball up. We've got good players all over the pitch who can create chances. Let's just steamroller this opposition. They're in the bottom half of the league for a reason. They are indeed. What, what about the canapes, though? The, the food's good, actually, but I, have, I will say this. I, don't, I was a guest of, the, of Rovers by Danny Davis and Mike Cheston, who I do talk to. 
And um, I used to go in those lounges years ago when I had a job that uh, got me invited to it a lot. And I mean, there must have been about 40 people in. It used to be rammed in there, and it was a great atmosphere after the game. And God bless him, by the time Danny Graham came down to get his uh, Man of the Match award, I think there was only about 10 of us left in the lounge. <laughs> it's a shame. The food's great, though. It always has been. I think um, Nigel Howarth and Craig Bancroft at Northcote do a top, top job. So there you go, folks. You heard it here first. Um, we'll, we'll expect a TripAdvisor review uh, as part of, uh, of all subsequent pods from there on. Hang on, did you did you ask him about the headband, or did that remain as subject unbroached? No, I don't talk to the players. I never have. You should have. <laughs> on this matter, it's very important. No, no, no. The way that he was dressed going around the Trafford Centre a few weeks ago would have, uh, would have been embarrassing. Anyway, Right, let's move on. T- time is marching on. So, after that game, we were in the top two, and of course it's the, uh, the Sky Sports slamming transfer window. Uh, God, what a performance that is. Yellow ties, yellow dresses, whatever. Uh, any road. Uh, I'm obliged to the Lancashire Telegraph, and I suppose it's your handiwork, Richard, for compiling all the activity. Do you want, do you want to talk us through some of the uh, highs and lows of the transfer window as a journalist? I'll make sure I haven't missed any now. Um, I think the outs were, were, um, were pretty good in the end. I think Feeney was always going to go somewhere, and I think the fact that Cardiff offered to take him was, uh, was a pretty straightforward one. Uh, and then later in the window, I think once it became clear Amari Bell was going to sign, then allowing Sam Hart to go out and hopefully get some games at Rochdale was was a fairly good one. The same with Scott Walker as well at Lincoln. Um, and then Elliot Ward, once once Lenehan was was near a new return, I think they were they were deals that were, were fairly good for Rovers. Um, and on the incomings front, I think obviously trying to get a Chapman type was was Mowbray's big one for the window. Uh, so you'd probably look to Armstrong for that. Um, trying to take some of the pressure, the creative pressure off Dak was another one, and which they'll probably look for Jack Payne for. Um, and then Amari Bell, who, who seems to have come and slotted in perfectly to, to provide competition for, for Derek Williams, who's the only one to have started every game under Mowbray. He's on to 47 consecutive starts now. So um, it's quite a record that um, that he's got there. So whether, whether Bell's going to provide that competition for him, we'll probably learn in the next couple of weeks when, uh, when there's a slot at left-back and uh, he's not needed to cover at centre-back. But, yeah, for me, a pretty good, uh, pretty good window for what Rovers needed. Absolutely. Just one question I've got. Do, do you have any idea how long Harry Chapman has on his contract? Because the, the local Middlesbrough paper seemed to be claiming that yeah. uh, it wasn't going to expire until 2019. Well, it, that is now right. Well, it's not now right. It is right. Um, that probably comes down to a bit of Middlesbrough not getting much access to the club now because of uh, because of the ban that they've got uh, with their um, with the club and the paper. But uh, Middlesbrough seems to have a track record of not announcing contracts that have been signed. So everything pointed to Chapman being out of contract this year, which is obviously why it got reported. But right. um, when um, I happened to speak to, to Chapman after the game on, um, against Walsall, uh, put a piece together with him, uh, which obviously Middlesbrough picked up on and put on their website, and then uh, shoved the line on the bottom that, contrary to reports, he's got another year on his contract. So somewhere along the line, since signing his last last contract, they've they've thrown an extension in it. So whether whether it could be, I don't know, an option or something yeah. like that, um, or how set in stone it is, but. Um, Apparently happened with Grant Ledbetter as well. Uh, the local paper up there were reporting that Ledbetter had got six months left on his contract and could leave, and then they threw a similar line out there saying that he is um, 
he's under contract as well. So this is what happens when uh, when clubs don't let people know that people have signed contracts. Yeah, uh, must, so yeah. must, must have been under the radar. My go-to website for those sorts of things is Transfer Marked. Yeah, yeah, and they they had him down as um, expiring in 2018. And I know that Mr. Delap was very keen to to tap him up. And was sort of saying he was he was free to negotiate terms and then had to be corrected on Twitter. Hang on, hang on. He's got a Twitter account. I can tap him up from there. Don't worry about that. That's, uh, that's no. If I put in the early work, we can have a year without him and then swoop in. But uh, I mean, uh, to be fair, a lot of the the sort of the the sort of operating uh, procedure seems to be to be targeting these players like Amari Bell, who've got limited time left on the contract and offering reduced fees on you know what they'd normally be worth. So that's something to bear in mind he, he obviously Chapman isn't massively in favour at Middlesbrough given he keeps on seems to be bagging League One promotion loan moves all the time so it's definitely one we should be chasing about regardless of whether he's got a year or, or not left I suspect that the fee that they would want for him um, and, and other clubs that will be interested in him will make it very difficult unless we win promotion I think as a championship club we're in a different ball game I'm sorry Rich I think you can rest assured that he loves his time here, though. You only need to speak to the lads to know how much he loves it up here. He loves, loves the lads being around everybody. So, Rovers have certainly got that in the favour that um, I think if, if Harry Chapman is going to leave leave Middlesbrough... Um, He'll be at the front of the game. Yeah, I think Rovers would certainly be up there with, with Bobby's connections up there. But the, the rapport he's got with supporters and the players um, and just probably where he can see his career going, I'd, I'd certainly think Rovers... Um, Rovers are up there but um, just on Amari Bell as well Mowbray said they were quoted a million pounds for him last summer when they inquired and that soon dropped to, to near enough 300 grand six months later so that just shows the value of the contracts yeah. and, and how when you've got six months left that the club are just willing to get anything for him so that'll probably be one to take into consideration with, uh, with Chapman mm. moving forward he looks a good he signing looks. I have to say on early, uh, early yeah I've been, ve- been very impressed um, slotted in rather nicely I was going to say it's, it's actually quite strange to sort of get Rovers in a in a window and transfer window and everything looks very sensibly tied up with a few days left. Uh, I must admit, transfer deadline day, I had absolutely no pressing need or want to bring anyone in. I thought we did some very smart business all in all. Yeah, I think it was a good, definitely a good window. The month uh, sort of progressed then with this trip down to, to Plymouth. Um, 1,200 Rovers fans making a long haul south, 18 games unbeaten, but we came back with our tails firmly between our legs. Um, Rich, from your perspective, I saw the um, the photograph that you t- tweeted from the press box. Did you, did you see any of the game, or did you only watch it in one half? In which case, it was probably yeah, a better look, view than many. Yeah, luckily that was the goal. I couldn't see where the two goals went in. So, um, but yeah, it was just a, a disappointing day all round. Long journey for for all the fans, compounded by some M6 uh, traffic on the way back, and uh, yeah, the players never really got going from uh, from minute one and. I think you can get a sense with this Rovers side how they start in the first 10 minutes. We touched on yeah. Fleetwood and Walsall when they flew out the blocks uh, and you knew they're on it here, that they're, they really fancy their job and you just never really got the the impression during the 90 minutes that they'd, they'd really got anything that could uh, could trouble Plymouth and in the end it was it was fairly comfortable. Yeah, well, I think the, the biggest disappointment for me, I can, I can sort of forgive going two goals behind, but it was you've got half-time, a chance to put it right, uh, the substitutions that he made, and then the disappointing second half performance and an insipid performance. Mike, what was your take? Yeah, it was it, like you say. I think it, it's almost looked like everybody was having a bit of a, a, a sick day or something like that. They didn't really fancy being in work that day. Everybody looked a bit disinterested, and there wasn't the usual zip to the passing. And I think 
Plymouth put in a few good sort of, uh, you know, welcome, we're here, welcome to your job for the afternoon tackles and 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 then started to press home the advantage. They were very clinical, Plymouth. I thought in all the let's blame as many players as we can on the Rovers' side remarks, I actually thought Plymouth were excellent. I thought they did a really good job on us and uh, hopefully nobody else noticed and we'll start to copy. Yeah, my take is that I think, I think it is a, well, you hope it's a one-off. We'll know whether it's a one-off in another two or three games. If it were me, I'd give them a chance to right the wrong. And if they did the same again, then there'd be some um, some paint blistering in the changing rooms. But you, you just hope that that was a one-off. Um, I was disappointed with the, the substitutions. I didn't think that the not bringing pain on, I think, was the, the most perplexing one. Rich, I know Mowbray has done a bit of a mea culpa after the game. Did, what, what did he say when you guys were talking to him? We, we pretty much didn't need to mention Jack Payne's name before he, he came and said I should have brought him on. So um, it, it was one one lined up to ask him, but he came out with himself. But the interesting thing for me was when he said he should have made three or four changes. When when you look at the team, uh, I couldn't really see where they were, were ever going to come from. I thought Conway would start, which would be one. But then if he was thinking three or four, you, you'd got Evans, who's just back from injury. You could play Samuel, I suppose. But but realistically, the, the options weren't really there for him, to be honest, to make to make wholesale changes. So I, I thought it, I, I didn't quite agree with, with that, that he should have made three or four changes. I didn't particularly, they were there for him. But um, fair play to him, took took the pressure off the players by by shouldering some of the blame. And the best way they can put it right is with uh, with a convincing win this weekend. But you can, you can sometimes manage with three or four underperforming and find your way through, but when that's probably eight, nine, ten, not at the best, you're um, you're always going to struggle. No, I must admit, watching the game, I thought, well, at least it's not a home game because I feel sorry for Peter Jackson trying to <laughs> to name the man of the match on the back of this performance because uh, I'd have given it to the groundsman, I think, or maybe the coach driver. It wasn't special. Yeah, can, can I just say, Ian, I, that was the first uh, loss this season that I've missed, and. Looking at some of the message boards, it was like the waiting room for Dignitas, as I think one of one of our friends commented on social media. And Rovers fans just seem to have no sense of perspective. Reality. You know, we're going to lose a game every now and again. We're going to have an off day. It doesn't mean that we're the worst team ever, that the manager's clueless. You know, and I'm always amazed at Tony Mowbray's honesty about um, his reaction to games where the result hasn't gone to us. I, I feel like he's watched the same game that we have. Hearing what Rich has said tonight has, uh, has really borne that out. And I think we'll bounce back from it. It'll do us good. It has to. Mm. Yeah, the proof of the pudding's in the eating, but I'm, I'm with you on the overreaction. There are still people on the message boards who are saying that, that Mobra should go. And there are still people saying that he should be he should be sacked if we only make the playoffs. You know, it's kind yeah, of I think, to say. I think I think the one the thing the one that I heard, I don't know who mentioned it, it wasn't my comment, but I really enjoyed it was that somebody had commented in December saying that in October I quite rightly called for Tony Mowbray to be sacked. And I will admit that he's done all right since then. And it's like so what you're basically saying is that you are absolutely wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of these message boards, I think some people just miss having an angry rant and it was almost like turning the taps on after one defeat. They've been waiting for it for months to then vent their, you know, vent their anger all over these boards. It's uh, it's absolutely, I, I can't believe these people walk amongst us. The thing that uh, is telling for me is harking back to um, the Dalgleish promotion year is, you know, in, in the, the April 
I think the back end of March, beginning of April, when we lost six on the bounce and went mm. from nailed on champions to, oh my God, we're going to miss out on the playoffs. Can you imagine if Twitter mm. had been around then, what the reaction would have been? Yeah, it's just, it beggars belief. Anyway, there we go. Onwards and upwards, friends. Onwards and upwards. So that's the end of part one. We've reviewed the games, reviewed the transfer window in part two. We'll learn a little bit more about Rich Sharp. You've heard from me already in part one, of course, but now in part two we have a chance to learn a little more about our special guest. Yeah, the Lancashire Evening Telegraph's man on the Rovers beat, Rich Sharp. Thanks once again for joining us, Richard. Much appreciated. Richard, we have a strong tradition of Rovers reporters in what was the Lancashire Evening Telegraph, and of course now is a Lancashire Telegraph, or I think LT as I'll reference it from now on. Names such as Al Thornton and of course Peter White, who even has a trophy in his honour awarded to the Rovers Goal of the Season winner since 2001, so no pressure. Mike, bonus points for naming the inaugural winner of the Peter White Trophy? Oh, I haven't even got Google to hand at the moment. That's um, what I was hoping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's have a think. 2001. I'll spread my bets and say Damien Duff. That's a pretty good answer because it's the correct answer. It was the, uh, ah. the goal away at Birmingham in the um, in the promotion ah. season. Memory recalls he went jinking through two or three of them. And yeah, I remember it. It was just a guess, but it was either him or Matt Janssen. It was 50 50. Behind the goal at St Andrews when he scored that and living in Birmingham at the time, it was tremendous going to work the next day. But there we go. <laughs> Anyhow, Rich, tell us a little bit about your background. Why journalism? Why sports, or particularly football reporting? And how on earth did you end up in Blackburn at the LT? Um, well, I started off as a, as a court reporter, as it happens, working at the Scunthorpe Telegraph. Um, did that when I first finished um, my journalism course. Um, did three years in that, and then fancied going into football, because it's what I'd always wanted to do, really, be a sports reporter. An opportunity came up at the Stoke Sentinel to cover crew. Uh, who I did for three years and then just fancied a new challenge and it coincided with the job coming up at the LT so that's really where it uh, where it came about and been there since November um, 2016. Just wondering, uh, I, I don't even know if I know this from previous tweeting or behaviour but who, who do you actually support? Uh, do you want to have a guess before I answer my, my trade secret? Uh, I, I don't want to embarrass you, it probably would be miles wrong so uh, I'll, I'll let you take, the, this, is your, <laughs> this is your stage. I'm going for Man United. <laughs> no, 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 certainly not. Um, I was actually a Rovers fan from um, from about five years old when, when everybody supported him. Uh, even though I grew up in Yorkshire, everybody supported Rovers because we started getting into football really when they won the Premier League and I was probably the only one daft enough to uh, to stick with them. But from, from not being local, I obviously struggled to get to games, just relied on my dad taking me. So when I fancied going to games, um, I got a season ticket with my mates at my local team, Rotherham United. So I had a season ticket there through... Um, through my teenage years and probably Rovers supporting days were more from afar than anything. But obviously, yeah, taken on uh, a bit of a turn since uh, since the job came back up and uh, and really got back into the to the Rovers swing of things. I didn't realise that. I say it's, it's good that you've got that Rovers heritage. I, I actually think you're a brave man, Rich, because you had to suffer through Leon Best twice. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, although, he did, to be fair, he didn't do bad as the, the Rotherham fans all... Um, I'll tell you, did quite well. Warnock somehow managed to, to get something out of him. So, uh, mm. yeah, I don't uh, I don't know quite how that worked. But, uh, yeah, obviously Matt Derbyshire kept him up the other year. So a couple of Rovers strikers down the years have, uh, have ended up down there. Remember Rotherham away a few years ago where Best missed that open net header from about a yard out, which yeah. other than <laughs> the own goal he scored uh, earlier this season, 
up there in my top five sporting moments, I'd say. <laughs> Rich, who's your uh, who's your sporting or footballing hero? Um, well, it was obviously Shearer as a kid. Um, I remember having a Rovers the the black and red away shirt with Shearer nine on the back and going on a family holiday when they sold him uh, and having to peel the, the letters off the back of the Rovers shirt. So that was uh, that was an early memory. And then I must admit, uh, more recently, I, I was one of the Rovers fans to catch the two guy bug. So that was. Uh, he was always mm. the man for me, just just his style and the way he played the game. Uh, I just thought it was brilliant. So uh, yeah, I was definitely a, a big uh, a big two guy fan. Mm. Happened to actually find the uh, the two guy mask when I went back for Christmas to my my parents' house. Still got the mask there, um, and didn't actually know that was uh, Mowbray's last game in charge of West Brom. And the West Brom fans were wearing Mowbray masks on that day uh, mm. before before it was. I think they went. They got relegated. Uh, I think he went to Celtic that summer, and he, he made it clear that he was going. Uh, and there was a young, a young Paul Downing on the uh, on the West Brom bench as well. So there's uh, quite oh, a few wow. memories from there. Uh, from what that goes game. around comes around. Exactly. Yeah. I think <laughs> Mike has a two guy story. Yeah. Qu- <laughs> actually, quiz for you, Rich. Can you name the Rovers fan who uh, spanked a ball into two guys' face during a charity match? Uh, is this is this your one claim? How many people know this? Then is this your, your one claim to fame that uh, you want story for everybody? <laughs> I'm not sure it's a claim to fame. Uh, I think um, it was yeah, it was it was probably about five thousand-ish people watching. I'd say. It was the uh, it was the action group supporters versus legends match a few years ago, and uh, I thought I'd settled into the game quite nicely. But ten minutes in, I tried to launch a ball upfield, only to spark in between the eyes and. Uh, <laughs> Got roundly booed, so that was that was a that was a fond moment. But um, I suppose coming away from the the football thing, uh, in terms of your obviously your journalistic career, do you have any particular sort of idols or heroes at all? I wouldn't I wouldn't really say. For some reason, it was what I always wanted to do from a, from as young as I can remember. I was always more into writing than than drawing or anything like that. I always used to to really write stuff about football generally. So I'd got the bug as, as quite a young age and just something that I've, I've followed through really, but ne- never really one for that I could really think of to, to say really. I mean, a few of my family have had journalist backgrounds, but um, that's more on the news side than sport. So just something that I've, I've followed through really from uh, from a young age. Do you ever watch Sunday Supplement, Rick? It's, it's so, the, uh, that's the, uh, the programme where the journos all sit around yeah, the table eating and croissants. I've, and it, it, yeah. it just seems to be of late that the, uh, they have an alarming tendency to disappear up their own backside. I just wondered what the, whether others, shall we say, less celebrated journalists, what they, what they yeah, thought of that programme. I think, I think there's very much a thing now with, with the national journalists. There's, there's quite a, like an image thing of it, it's all about the individual rather you know from working from a paper I think they've all got like a, a profile for themselves and yeah you can't go through the week now without them whether it's on the um the Friday night thing on five live or match of the day two extra or whatever's on on a Sunday you, you find them everywhere uh, national journalists doing things like that and I think it's just adding adding more strings to the bow and that just happens to be to be another one but I think when you're working in football like working around football I do quite like um, like a Sunday off of, of taking a break, so I don't actually tend to watch uh, tend to watch that other Sunday morning. To be honest, well, I've, I've deleted it from my program plan. I must admit, because the last two or three that I've watched have irritated me to the point where my blood pressure goes through the goes through the bloody roof. I think the comparison yeah. between the quality of the debate you get in cricket, and and I know there's a lot a lot of former players will uh, will gravitate yeah. towards cricket and football is quite mild. I'm not sure if it's just a football thing, actually, but you know, like when you watch other sports, I was quite impressed by the level of technical information they impart. The stuff that us 
mere mortals don't know. But in football, they just seem to spend a lot of the time like regurgitating rubbish from the paper from three days ago. I'm not sure if that might just be me cynically imagining that. There's so much opinion about now that you can't really go, you know, to have a different opinion because uh, so many are covered now. You're more than likely to have the same as somebody else. And a lot of people mm-hmm. in football, if, if they don't agree, you're pretty much two sides of the argument, aren't you? Where I don't think there's there's quite that balance in football. I think because a lot of people see it through through their, their eyes that they want to see it, and whatever anybody says, they they're still going to see it the same way. So once people have got an opinion in football, that's they're pretty dead set on it, and that's uh, that's hard to change. What whatever in the game you're talking about. Appreciate you've not been around for 30, 40 years or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> even in the short span of time it seems to a lot of outsiders who don't work in the industry that things might have changed in journalism would you say that's fair and to what extent yes I, I think certainly even from from when I've started I, I started at the Scunthorpe Telegraph the week after it had just gone um, just gone from a daily paper to a weekly paper um, and just everything that comes with that really um, and it's very much a website approach first now I think um, we're seeing that more from all outlets really uh, there's still an audience. Everybody wants news, but it's just how, how people are consuming it, really. Um, so you have to cater for all. And what works well on websites doesn't always work in the paper, and, and vice versa. So I think it's just the way people consume it. A lot in sport now, as well as purely football. I think we've seen a lot of, of sports drop off, really, on, on some websites with some newspapers, just because it don't get the numbers online. And, and for, for limited staff, I think that's that's the main thing, really, is trying to draw in uh, draw in the numbers any way you can. To be fair to what we do, we do a, a weekly uh, grassroots pullout, uh, try and get regular Accrington Stanley coverage as well as non-league, which I think is important from a, from a newspaper perspective. But probably don't get quite the, the online hits that uh, that some other things do. Is there anything particularly that you'd actually change? What's the one sort of thing you look at and think, do you know what, if it was up to me, I'd change this tomorrow? I, I'm, I'm quite, to say, probably quite new into to the industry. I'm, I'm quite a, a paper-focused person, so I'd, I'd like quite like holding stuff back for the paper. Um, but, but that has, has pretty much gone now. You, you've got a story and then suddenly... It's all over Twitter and, and you're behind the ball game when you probably had it first, but we're trying to save it. So just, just things like that, really. That It's just so competitive now with, with whatever you've got that everyone's just trying to trying to do similar things. Um, so that would possibly be one thing that it's just become such a congested market now where it's it's so difficult to um, to, re- to really keep things keep things back. So, Rich, how much attention do you pay to the social media chatter from the fans about the club? Uh, I, th- I think you have to, really, because you have to be aware of what the fans are saying, because I think for the most part, they're the, the people that are your audience and the people that you want to be reading your stories. So I think if there's obviously a topic of conversation that, that fans want to be discussed or an area that you think you might be able to get a story of, I think it's, um, I think it's important to, uh, to keep on top of that. On, on the other hand, it's, it's a 24-7 job, but a lot of clubs have, have at least more than one reporter now when you go to games. So so when you're on your own, it, it can be difficult to to be across everything. But yeah, I think you like to keep a, across what the fans are talking about. They're the people who, who pay the money and, and go to games and uh, might want to know something that, that either you might know or, or can be able to try and get the answer to uh, to what they're thinking. Yeah, I, just, I was just curious as to, you know, in this social media age, there's so much noise, so much chatter everybody's got an opinion. There are forums like this. There are forums like, um, well, other, other ones we could mention. Um, <laughs> there's, there's the message board underneath your, um, underneath your paper. And I know you've said you have to listen to the voices of the fans, but 
does it not sometimes just get a little bit too noisy? Probably, it's probably might be probably a good thing, but I'm probably oblivious to what most people think of me and what what they're, <laughs> what they're saying about the job I'm doing or, or the club. So you certainly can't be across everything, and I'm not one who goes digging around to too much. It's just keeping abreast of what people are saying on Twitter or or um, or telling you. I think now that people have got a direct line to you through things like Twitter and social media, if they if they do want to know what what you're thinking or want to know something, and then. And they can ask you on there. And I think you're never going to stop people having their opinions. And I, I think it, it's good that people have got these different platforms to to express their opinions. Now, I think social media, from that point of view, is a good thing that people can watch a game and they can instantly put out what they think about it. So, yeah, there are different platforms out there. I think um, I think it's not necessarily a, a bad thing that, that some people might always think, uh, think is. And how do you manage that delicate balance, Rich, between, on one hand, wanting to ask all the tough questions. And let's be honest, Rovers have been a difficult club. To, well, they've been an exciting club in many ways for a, <laughs> yeah. a, a reporter to cover. But um, how do you tread that very delicate line between wanting to ask the tough questions and making your mark as a journalist and, on the other hand, not falling out with the club by calling for the manager's head? Or Well, I, I certainly think from from like match opinions and things of, of games and stuff that you watch, I think... You just have to be honest and, and say what you think, and a lot of opinion pieces are are exactly that. And um, you might see it's different to, to somebody else, but that's just where you're coming from. Uh, from an aspect of covering a club, I think it's just like any whether you're covering council meetings, hospital meetings. It's just about getting across um, the stories that are out there and just asking for comments and things like that. Just making sure that your stories are balanced, and I think that's that's what Rovers is any organisation would want to be the same that whatever you're writing they're just getting a chance to to give their side of their side of things so covering things from from protests or accounts or anything like that I think as long as the club have just had had their right to to say what um what their take on it is I, th- I think that's just the, the way that you've got to go about things and the main thing is down to trust I think um just having that respect between between both parties and obviously it spans back a long time before me um there's a long-standing relationship there, and I'm I'm just the latest person in that to to try and keep that going. I think from probably actually leads quite nicely into the, the question I was thinking of next, in the sense that you obviously weren't about during the perhaps most perceived most difficult period in our uh, history. But from your experience, since you started working at the Lancashire Telegraph, have you found Rovers quite easy to deal with on a day-to-day basis, or have you? Yeah, I'd I'd say that from a, from a club point of view, that they're very accommodating. I think. Um, the relationship between you look at a lot of clubs now and um, local papers and clubs and there's a real breakdown in communication. You have to look at Middlesbrough. Uh, their reporters not allowed to go to, to any press conferences or ask any questions. Whereas on the flip side of that, I think the access that we get is, is very good. There's not normally a blank week that goes by without some form of player access, whether that's through player appearances without the community. Um, get to speak the manager at press conferences and players as well. Uh, player and manager after game so I think the access on, on that kind of thing is um, is good uh, the club are very accommodating and it just makes the, the, the job that bit that bit easier really mm-hmm. I've got told by a little birdie by the way apparently that you can uh, set Mo- Mowbray up with a question and you get about 25 minutes worth of material yeah he's, uh, he's, he's good like that you never have to uh, you never know my, have to ask too many questions uh, and, and he's very honest as well and that, that makes it a lot easier that when 
when you ask him a question after a defeat, if, if he didn't think they played very well, he'll, he'll tell you that. And that makes it a lot easier. You, you don't look like you're contrasting the manager when when you can see that. And I think he, he knows that he can't pull the wool over people's eyes. They're watching the same game as he has. Um, and even though sometimes he, he might want to protect protect his players, I think he knows that there's that honesty factor there with the supporters that, that he just has to say how it is. And I think that, that, goes, for, that goes for me when I try and assess a game and just try and try and be honest and, and go with go with what I've seen because you can't pull the wool over people's eyes they, they, they've watched the matches as well as you have and uh, I, I just think that's that's the way you've got to go about things do you do, you do the player ratings yes has <laughs> anybody ever taken you to task not Rovers no I once had a, a player at crew uh, actually I gave him man of the match and he said why do you give me a, a seven and not an eight um but yeah, I think it's always difficult with them. That it's difficult in two lines to sum up a player's performance over ninety minutes, yeah, yeah. particularly when a lot of the players play to a similar level and similar style every game. I think fans like to read them, uh, but I've no, I've never had a, a player mention them to. I'd like to say that's because I'm doing half decent job at them, but uh, I'm not sure they take too much interest in in what I say. That, that they're professionals, they they know more than anybody yeah. whether they've got to the level that they want to. Uh, and I must say that the Rovers players are are excellent to work with. They're very accommodating, always very polite and, and gracious with you. So uh, yeah, I can have uh, have no complaints. But yeah, the ratings are uh, certainly mine. Well, thank you very much for that insight, Rich. That's been that's been tremendous. It's always nice to get under under the lid uh, and and see what what's going on. And I think that's been a, a very very insightful and informative piece. So thank you once again for that. So welcome back to uh, part three. A couple of things we want to talk about. And first off, football lost a great man uh, a few weeks ago in Jimmy Armfield. Mikey, what do you what do you know about Jimmy Armfield? I mean, probably not as much as our senior statesman, admittedly. But uh, obviously, never met him in person or anything like that. But anybody who ever heard talk about him, uh, you know, has nothing but glowing praise from a very down-to-earth man by all accounts. Uh, the only thing that did tickle me a little bit was a story that I was alerted to online a few years ago about, uh, or a few years ago, a few days ago, sorry, about um, Howard, uh, Howard Wilkinson storming into uh, a, a press conference, a very sort of sour and angry man. Uh, and Jimmy Armfield was obviously in attendance uh, at, this, at this press conference. And he was, Howard Wilkinson then set off on a, a load of journalists uh, fuming and ranting and saying like, Obviously, usual stuff like, what do you lot know? You lot have never played football. How many England caps have you lot had? And then Jimmy Armfield sat right at the back of the room, very quietly, just turned around and said, well, uh, 43, uh, as it so happens. Um, so, uh, yeah, all in the comic timing, I'm led to believe. He's one of those voices on, on Five Live that was just so reassuring. And he had certain stock phrases, and there are, there are more qualified people than I that have written eulogies to him. Um, but all I can say is he, he was a tremendous to listen to, and there is a wonderful uh, documentary on um, on Five Live. I think it's still on the um, the iPlayer Radio app that was recorded last summer, uh, clearly with a an eye to uh, his illness and him being poorly, uh, in which he talked uh, about his life in football. And of course, the 1966 World Cup where he was in the squad, but missed out. Uh, he'd been injured pre- prior to the tournament and never really got his place back. Um, and Mark Pugach, I think it was, doing the interviewing, sort of said, um, 
you know, didn't, didn't you feel like you missed out? And he, he just turned around and said, well, isn't it better that we won it? And he just thought that that, that selfless nature was just an uh, absolute, uh, absolute epitome. He also, of course, had a, had a role in the background at Rovers. Uh, he was um, certainly an advisor to the board on more than one occasion and apparently was responsible for pointing Rovers in the direction of uh, a promising young coach at Stoke City by the name of Howard Kendall, who got us promoted out of the third tier. So let's hope that um, we can repay that thanks by, by coming out of the third tier again this year. But uh, yeah. RIP Jimmy, uh, a great loss for football. Yeah, I love these old guys, you know, Clayton, Douglas, Finney, Lofthouse, and now, you know, Jimmy Armfield. And one by one, you know, we're, we're losing them, aren't we? And I think it gives us a chance to pause and think about the qualities that they brought to football. One other item on our agenda then, um, whether this is a positive or a negative, <laughs> depends on your take. Um, how quickly a club can respond to fan clamour, let's put it that way. Leeds United's new crest. Um, any, anybody in favour of it, Michael? No, it was a stunt, Ian. Um, the whole thing was just a ridiculous stunt where they used that image of a fist over there that looked like a Zenit St. Petersburg crest um, because their actual new crest will be launched next year. And this was just to draw attention to the whole process. <laughs> Seriously. PR at its finest. There's a, there's a wonderful article which I think Henry Winter signed posted earlier today in, in Marketing Weekly. And when you get insightful football analysis in a publication such as Marketing Weekly, the game Brilliant. is gone. Mm. Yeah, I think the thing I really enjoyed was the explanation afterwards from the powers that be that were behind the design. I think they were going along the lines like proper middle management speak, uh, you know, saying like the process needs some reevaluating with. Uh, consulted every you know just basically it was rubbish and we did a really crap job if you haven't got the phrase the leveraging operational capabilities in there somewhere mm. then that somebody somewhere yeah. isn't doing the job anyhow there we go so uh for rovers then what's on the horizon for the rest of february uh we've got oldham away oldham at home sorry coming up portsmouth away bury at home walsall away and then wimbledon away so a couple of lengthy uh, southern based trips one to the midlands rich what catches your eye uh, from those fixtures uh, two long trips on a Tuesday night. I've been uh, not been looking forward to February and all this travelling, to be honest, with uh, with Plymouth thrown in with those two. But um, yeah, certainly an opportunity, you'd think, to, to hopefully put Plymouth behind them this weekend with um, with Oldham. Um, two Tuesday nights um, and obviously a Sky game with Bury. So yeah, plenty to look forward to. And hopefully by the time we've come to to end February, there'll be. Um, I've hauled those points back and um, be back in the automatic promotion places because it's so tight up there. And for, for me, it's certainly going to be three, uh, two from the top three for the automatics. Yeah, I've got I've got a horrible feeling that the team that finishes third will finish with a, a massive haul of points. Yeah, that, that certainly seems where they're going. The teams behind them aren't really pulling up too many. But yeah, hopefully by by the end of February. Uh, we'll have ticked off another five games. They'll be just coming up to what eleven to go then. So we'll be really into the uh, the crux of the promotion race then. And hopefully all Rovers can do is just keep putting the points on the board. I actually asked Mowbray um, whether the, the late Shrewsbury goal the other day uh, bothered him, and he just put uh, just said I couldn't care less to be honest. Um, so it's clearly a focus on Rovers, and now they're certainly looking at it is is if they can get enough points that they see should get them up then. Uh, then they'll just let everything else take its course. That's all you can do, isn't it? You can control the team that you've got in front of. We can't influence. We've taken four points off Shrewsbury. That's all that mm. we can do now. So just give us a bit of um, a bit of insight then. Uh, the the trip down to Portsmouth. Uh, how, when will your day start and, and end? 
I'm not sure. I, I'll, I've not uh, I've not started researching. I said to the Plymouth guys actually, we'd uh, we'd been talking amongst the, the lads from the club and myself before Plymouth, and we'd treated it like an expedition. Uh, whereas the, the Plymouth guys obviously have that every other week when they're travelling up to the northwest yeah. for for the amount of clubs that um, that are around this neck of the woods. So yeah, certainly be I don't know middle of the day start and then uh, do the game and hours and hours work afterwards and then. Hit the road about eleven o'clock. So, um, so do you typically tend to drive, or do you get the train? Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, obviously, train was difficult to Plymouth. I don't know how many Rovers fans did it, but when I was looking at it, it was looking at it. It ended at Manchester at just after midnight, and then it was buses all the way back. So, yeah, I drove there and back to Plymouth in the day, um, and it'll probably be the same for uh, for Portsmouth as well. So, plenty of chance to to stew on a two 0 defeat when you've got the uh, the long drive home. Fantastic. Mm. Do you, did you get uh, any of the Plymouth lot giving you the uh, "Don't know you're born" speech uh, for complaining about <laughs> one trip down to Plymouth? Yeah, I know. Obviously, they were saying, "Oh, we have this every other week," and uh, when it's a League One Northwest, obviously you do you do feel from it's it's a hell of a trip down there. But um, yeah, they're, they're very welcoming down there. It's a, it's a big club, Plymouth, well supported. I thought it was a very good crowd there, and um, they're certainly looking up the table now. I think they've lost one in eleven now, so. Um, and hopefully they can make that one in twelve when they had to. I think they've got Shrewsbury this weekend, so we'll be uh, they'll be the latest team that we'll look to uh, to do Rovers a favour on Saturday. But uh, yes, like I've said, if Rovers can pull something out of the bag against Oldham, which I think this team have, have always certainly responded well. They've, they've never got more than more than two games without a win, so I do, I do fancy them this week. I think an, an occasional uh, kick up the backside every, every now and then is not to, not always a bad thing. Well, we certainly owe Oldham one after that disastrous performance away earlier this season. And I hope that we've got a plan to handle Jack Byrne because he made us look mm. daft at Boundary Park, that's for certain. No, I was going to say all, the, all their midfield three I thought were very good. I thought Dan Gardner was, was excellent and the big, is it Fane or Farne or however you pronounce it, the, the big lad in the central midfield, they, they were all very good against Rovers. And I didn't think there was a great deal in it. I thought that game had nil-nil written all over it, to be honest, but... Um, just that late goal, but uh, yeah, I do. I do fancy Rovers to to come out on Saturday and, uh, and put in a performance and, uh, and get things right. So, well, that's all for this episode. As always, thank you to all of our panelists for giving up their time. It's hugely appreciated, and thank you also to you, our listeners, for giving up your time to listen to our inane ramblings. Feedback, as always, is welcomed on the BRFCS forum or on our Twitter feed. We're on the iTunes platform, so that makes subscription a whole lot easier. And if you're feeling especially kind, then please leave us a review. It does help in our listings, but also gives us that nice warm glow inside when people say some nice things. We do this purely for the love, incredibly, and so knowing it's appreciated really makes a difference. So thanks once again to our panellists. And Rich, thank you in particular for joining us tonight. That's been a real insight, and we really appreciate your time. So goodbye, everyone, once again from the BRFCS pod squad.